All right, let's stand together. We're going to get into the book. I don't have any class to dismiss. At Finding the Rock, we're having two Finding the Rock graduations Saturday morning. One of them is meeting right back here, uh, and this is their last one. But we're going to graduate them Saturday morning. We got two more. We got so many Finding the Rocks going on. We're cycling them all the time. Isn't that good? That is good. Next Wednesday night, a new one starts. How many of you have not been through Finding the Rock? Let me see your hands. Boy, look at all those, George. Uh, we, need, we need your names real quick, and then we're going to... And your addresses and your emails. Now, I encourage you, go through it if you, uh, God so leads, and I think he might be leading you. You can do it any time. We do it all the time. Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings. So hop into one. Now, we're going to look tonight at Jude and three sizzling snapshots. I tell you, I love the Word of God. I love the Word. I mean, I'm not bragging. God has given me a love for the Word of God. I love it uh, because it is my food. It is my water. It is my faith builder. It is my wisdom. And I could go on and on. But Jude is so strong and in a few weeks, don't have the exact date, but we're going to be starting going from Jude to the colossal Christ of Colossians. Because Jude is a natural feed-in to Colossians because Colossians is all about fighting the Gnostic heresy. And Colossians is Jude squared. It's good stuff. And I want you to know the Word of God. Now, let's pray together and then we're going to look at this tonight out of the book of Jude, three sizzling snapshots. Father, thank you that you are the author of this word. And Lord, that it's divinely inspired, all of it. And we ask you to feed us tonight. We ask you to speak to us tonight to increase our wisdom, increase our knowledge and understanding, and build our faith so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of men. But we are solid in Jesus, unmovable like a great oak tree. We thank you for it. Now, can you breathe a prayer tonight? Say, Lord, speak to my heart. In Jesus' name, I receive it. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, Jude. Now, I'm not trying to get a Beatles song going in your head. But I just wanted you to remember this. Now, let's look at this. Um, uh-oh. Clicker's not working. That is really bad news. Is that on? It's not working. There we go. Well, that was delayed. Let's see if that's going to happen. Okay, now it's moving. Hallelujah. There's none of this in heaven. There's no clickers. There's no sound. But thank God we've got this. Now, last time we looked at the apostasy of Cain, remember? And we showed how apostasy attacks the salvation of God or the means of God's salvation. And now the apostasy of Balaam we looked at second. And with Balaam's apostasy, we saw how apostasy attacks the sovereignty of God. And then the apostasy of Korah, the rebel, how apostasy attacks the service of God or God's delegated authority, God's delegated positions, God placing people where he wants them. And we shared how you ought, you've got to discern people according to their calling, not, not according to their flaws, but discern people according to their calling, not their flaws. And that's what Korah did. He discerned Moses according to his flaws. And because Moses was 
a cousin. Then he said, well, you know what, I can be in the same position as you. And he, he failed to discern the calling on Moses. And, well, it got him swallowed up by the earth. And thank God that doesn't happen anymore because there would be a lot of swallowed up people. Now, I want to recap because we have gone through Second Peter and Jude. And both Second Peter and Jude have dealt with apostasy. Now, why do you think that God would put this subject into his word so much, so often, so plentifully? Because the devil attacks the church in the mind. The devil goes for the mind. God goes for the heart. When you came to Christ, it was because God convicted your heart. But when the devil goes after you and I, he goes after our mind. He said to Eve, has God said? And he got her debating the word of God. He attacked her mind. And so the enemy has no new tricks. The old ones work good enough. He doesn't need new ones. So he attacked the church right out of the chute with false teaching, heretical teaching. So I want us to kind of recap what is apostasy? What is an apostate? What is it when somebody apostatizes? Well, the Greek word is apostasia. That's what apostasy comes from, and it applies, implies that the one leaving the faith was at one time in accurate knowledge of the religion's belief system, and then they fall away from it. Apostasy is the abandonment or the forsaking of faith or commitment to follow the Lord often described as a turning away in Jeremiah 8.5 or a falling away in Hebrews 6.6. 6. Apostasy in the Bible always results in punishment, hence the many warnings against it. And I gave you a lot of verses there to look at the warnings against walking away from God's truth because you will be punished by the hand of God if you do. Now, apostates... Some of them in the New Testament include Hymenaeus and Alexander. Remember Paul talking about them? He named names. Old Paul named names. And guess what? If he named your name and it was bad, you were in the eternal word of God. Now he said Hymenaeus and Alexander. Then he said Demas. Demas gave up the mantle of an apostle for the world. Bad trade. And then Phygelus and Hermogenes. Some of the names that Paul named that apostatized, that walked away from the truth and began to embrace a lie. Now, the apostates that Jude and Peter were focused on had also, and this is what made them dangerous, they had also become teachers. And what did they teach? Well, apostates teach heresy. If they were teaching what was sound, they wouldn't be apostates. So apostates became teachers of heresy. They began to infiltrate the early church. And when we're going to see when we get into the book of Colossians, they were making great headway in that little church in Colossae. And so Paul wrote the book of Colossians to answer the heresy of apostates. So you can see over and over again why it was a, a, a huge issue to the early church and the Word of God being eternal. God knew that we would need it as well today, maybe even more. So they became teachers of heresy. Now, what's, what's heresy? Heresy is teachings that threaten to attack the basic foundations of Christianity. And they primarily manifest in teachings regarding the nature of God and Christ, as well as the resurrection. Heresy always attacks 
the work and the character of Jesus Christ. The person, work, character of Jesus Christ. If it's heresy, it is somehow undermining, marginalizing, devaluing the person and work of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, the fact that he was all man, all God, all God, all man, who the Bible says that he is, heresy always attacks that. So, the Apostle Paul predicted a massive apostasy for the last days, and I submit to you, well, let me ask you a million-dollar question. Do you see that happening out there? I mean, a real apostasy. What is it? Walking away from the truth I have known. I'm walking away. Here's the truth, the inerrant truth, the eternal truth concerning Christ, God's Son, His Word, the way He wants us to live, all of the absolute truth in the Word of God. An apostate turns away from it and walks away. And when he walks away, he walks into darkness. Paul said it's going to happen in the last days. Look what he said, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit, the Spirit of God expressly says, clearly says that in latter times, some are going to depart from the faith. That's apostatizing. Giving heed to deceiving spirits. Look at that. They are deceived. They walk away because they've been deceived. And, and doctrines or teachings of demons. Demons teach. And they teach heresy. Speaking lies. These, these apostates, look, will speak lies in hypocrisy and have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That is, they lose the ability to tell what is right from wrong, wrong from right, good from bad, bad from good, light from dark, dark from light. They go into such darkness they can no longer discern. And Paul said it's going to happen a lot in the latter times. Now, it's these heresy-teaching apostates that Peter, Jude, Paul, and John were all concerned with in their writings. This is who they were targeting, their messages. We're going to see Paul totally dismantle Gnosticism when we look at the book of Colossians. Now, this time we're going to look at three sizzling snapshots that illustrate three aspects of apostasy that cannot help but impress us in the backslidden day in which we live. We're going to see it, what we're going to look at, it's happening all around us right now. The snapshots include the question of successful delusions, verses 12 and 13, and then secular humanism, 14 through 15, and subversive criticism, verse 16. Now, he writes... Here goes Jude. He's talking about the apostates who are teaching heresy. He said, these are spots in your... How would you like to be called a spot? And who gave him these words? The Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now look, he said, these are spots in your love feasts, your fellowship meetings, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Now he's describing the ways of these false teachers. They are, Jude says, clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, I'm going to explain that one, pulled up by the roots. They are, look at all these metaphors and illustrations, one stacked on another, stacked on another, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness. How long? 
Now, just reading this, it makes no sense, does it? When we got these people out there teaching now that uh, hell is not forever and that nobody's going to stay in hell, everybody's going to get out and be redeemed by the love of God. Is that what Jude said? Come on, church, talk to me. No, there's going to be some people who are in the blackness of darkness for how long? For, you know how long forever is? Forever. Good. Now you're with it. It's forever. And that's a long time. Now, the apostates are first tremendously deceptive. These are spots in your love feast, Jude says. Now, the word spots can be translated hidden rocks. It denotes a rock or a reef reaching up from the depths of the sea, yet hidden just enough to be treacherous to a ship. I used to live in East Texas, and, and I watched Lake Fork come in. If you know anything about Lake Fork, if you're a fisherman or whatever, Lake Fork's a beautiful lake, beautiful bass lake. And one time I was sitting there talking to a friend on the lake shore, and I heard, we heard a powerboat coming, full throttle. We heard it coming. We could tell that it was a bad boy. This was a powerful boat. And then we heard it hit an underwater stump. We ran down there, got close to the shore. My friend, who is a, a, a hopeless witness for Christ, sees these guys floating in the water and says, you need, you need some help, obviously. And he went and got his boat, picked them up, and witnessed to him about Jesus. He had a captive audience. They had been drinking beer, and they hit an underwater stump. Now, that's spots. That's spots. They shipwrecked, and it was bad. Their brand-new, beautiful fiberglass bass boat blew up. There was nothing left. They were lucky to be alive. What happened to them? They hit something that was just beneath the surface. That's what these false teachers are like. They infiltrate the church. They are not standing there going, you who, here I am. I am a false teacher, happy to be among you. They come in stealth-like. They are underwater. They are there just enough to shipwreck you. They are hidden. When they feast with you, they come to your love feast, let come to your fellowships, hobnob with you. Dining together meant far more to the first century Christians than it does to those of us in the modern West. When you got together for food, in those days, to sit at table with somebody implied a bond of friendship and fellowship. Orientals would not break bread with somebody they intended to betray. They wouldn't do it. The sin of the apostates was even worse in that they were using every means available to profess open or oneness and unity with the very people they were seeking to undermine and betray. I will befriend you. I will... Be your friend and get close to you and gain your trust and gain your confidence if I can seduce you into heresy. Feeding themselves without fear. Let me tell you something. Apostates can say praise the Lord. A false teacher of heresy can say hallelujah. Are you all there? A false teacher can be behind a pul pulpit on TV, on radio, not me. But they can be out there, and they are out there, looking normal, talking normal, attractive, intelligent, educated-sounding, feeding themselves among you. They're not even afraid of what they're doing. They have no fear of God. The word for feast, your love feast, 
Feasts suggest to revel. And the apostates were sparing no expense to make friends and influence people. They had an outward mask of good, hearty fellowship. Praise the Lord, brother. Have you ever noticed that the cults use all many of the same words non-cults do? They're very good at it. But their words have different meanings than ours do. But they can say praise the Lord. They can say hallelujah. They can say amen. They can say thank you, Jesus, but still teach heresy. You've got to pick the fruit. You've got to look at what they're teaching and hold it up against the word of God and see if it's real. You've got to be discerning. And I think the church is in a discernment crisis right now. I really do. I think the church is in a major discernment crisis. We are not discerning evil. We are not discerning false teaching. We are not discerning wolves in sheep's clothing. We are not discerning false doctrine. So, the word feeding is from a word meaning to pastor or to act as a shepherd does to his flock. Look what it said in that verse. Feeding themselves without fear. What does that mean? What's he telling us? That these people, these apostates, pretend to love the flock of God to be spiritual shepherds, but they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing looking out only for themselves. Their Godhead is me, myself, and I. They're false. But if the church doesn't get more discerning, I'm going to tell you, the church is being taken in by false teaching by the day. Things that I read in the news just blow me away. I can't believe it. And the only way that it can happen is if a church or a Christian doesn't know the scriptures. That's why I'm teaching you the Word of God. I'm just holding it up there and showing it to you. There's nothing fancy about this. I want you to look at it and learn it so that when it comes your way, you go, I smell a skunk. Jude goes on to show that the apostates are ultimately disappointing. Oh, they're so disappointing. They are, I love this metaphor that he uses, clouds without water carried around by winds. What does that mean? Well, in the time of drought, there's no more welcome sight than an approaching rain cloud. Soon there will be water. Hope rises in every heart. Cattle lift their weary heads. Shriveled flowers yearn for water. But when the rain cloud blows over without releasing a single drop, great disappointment settles on the land. Listen, False teachers of heresy always promise things that God will never deliver. That's why you have to be very careful what you teach people to expect from God. It's got to be according to the scriptures. If you teach people that God jumps every time you make a certain confession and then they don't get it and it doesn't happen, they walk away. They become disillusioned. It's a cloud without any water. The teachers of heresy, apostates, are never able to deliver, to deliver on the promises they tell their listeners because it's not based on the Word of God. So it's a great disappointment. It's exactly the same with apostates. The cloud of their false promises fails to deliver. They sound so convincing. But the thirsty people who look eagerly to them for that life-giving reign of revival look to them in vain. They have nothing you can't give what you don't have. I'm going to say that again. Listen carefully. You can't give to somebody else what you don't have. That's why when you have an experience with God, you've got something to give. But if you don't have a real experience with God, all you are is talk and hot air. You don't have anything to give. 
But you can give what you do have. But these false teachers, they don't have what they say they do. They don't have an inside track. They don't have some corner on God. And so they become a disappointment. And so many, so many disillusioned people are out there now who won't come to church, who are sitting at home disillusioned with their experience with God, with Christ, with the Scriptures, because they listen to people who told them to expect things or to believe things that were not based in Scripture. Now, then too, the apostates, they're spiritually dead. They are trees, Jude says, whose fruit withers. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Now the phrase, whose fruit withers, is talking about autumn decay. Or to trees that bear no fruit at the time when they're supposed to. When they should bear fruit. What could be more disappointing than a barren fruit tree? Have you ever planted an apple tree, an orange tree, or peach tree? And had it die on you. And there's no, Jesus didn't like it. He came up on a fig tree and there was nothing on it. And he cursed it. He said there should have been some figs. And he cursed it. Of course, he was moving in a, in a picture, and a symbol. And I could go into that, but we don't have time tonight. But nevertheless, when you have a fruit tree, you want fruit. Amen? Well, Jude says that the apostates are dead twice. Well, what does that mean? They're dead because as children of Adam's ruined race, they're born spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. That's their first death. You're born spiritually unplugged. We know that, right? Born spiritually dead. But now, they're twice dead because when confronted with the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord, they spurn it. And there, they're twice dead. And Jude says, here's what's going to happen to them. They'll be plucked up by the roots. There's no hope for them. It is impossible that they will ever bear fruit in their apostasy. They're both dead and they're damned. I know that's strong, but you know what? I've come to realize Jesus was a hell, hellfire and brimstone preacher. Not my Jesus. He was gentle Jesus. Oh, then you're not reading my Bible. Gentle Jesus. Yeah, he was gentle. He was gentle with people that wanted to be healed and wanted to be delivered. But the people like the Pharisees and Sadducees and hypocrites, oh, he was anything but gentle. Our Jesus made a whip and went into the temple. And I find it interesting, a temple full of men. No one dared take our Jesus on because he let go with that whip and they all fled and he was standing alone in the temple. Our Jesus was a man's man. He was. He was. And, you know, you, you've got to be, be careful that you, when you talk about gentle Jesus, there's also the, the Jesus who can judge and who can exercise wrath. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But look what Jesus said. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted is going to be rooted up. So if the Lord Jesus hadn't planted you, then you're going to be rooted up. And that's never a good thing. Now next, Jude says that apostates are very terribly dangerous. Jude says they're like raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Nothing can stand before the fury of an onrushing angry sea. It sweeps away everything in its path, 
Think tsunami. Remember that tsunami wave that came? We all saw it on TV. Nothing could stand against it. This is what Jude describes as being like false teachers, apostates, teachers of heresy. They release a flood. They sometimes, they can seem invincible. They are raging, says Jude, meaning wild, untamable, savage, fierce. The Greeks used the word to describe a malignant wound. That's what they, they use the same word as Jude does. Jude says these false teachers release a force that is extremely destructive and damaging. If you've ever seen it happen, I have. I've seen false teaching ruin lives. I've seen false teaching transform people for the worse, like I've seen Jesus transform the worse for the better. I've seen false teaching ruin families, ruin lives, shipwreck faith, move through a church and destroy a church. I believe right now there are certain false teachings moving through America that are literally destroying this country. When I look at political correctness, when I look at the militant homosexual movement, when I look at all the, the major messages that are out there that are, that are contrary to Scripture, and I see them moving on the level of a giant tsunami wave across this country, and I watch what they're doing, it is amazing. And so Jude wants us to know, this is very dangerous stuff when you go into heresy. That is God's description of the apostates. They often occupy pulpits, media ministries, and high positions in seminaries and other places of influence. As a matter of fact, they love getting into positions of influence because that's what they're really after is to influence people. Their corrupt teachings sweep like a destructive, fierce, raging wave, leaving destruction and ruin in its path. I think right now the most dangerous philosophy out there is political correctness. And it's a false teaching. It tells you you better not judge anything. You better not call anything wrong. And if you call it wrong, you're wrong. It removes your ability to discern between bad and good, light and dark, wrong and right. It, it binds and muzzles believers and it binds and muzzles a country from even being able to defend itself because we won't call an enemy an enemy. If I could describe America right now, I would see America tied up, bound up, chained up, muzzled up. And our enemies love it and play it like a violin. We've got to get free of political correctness. Where we can be at least like Jesus, who said, you brood of vipers, well that was pretty judgmental. Who, you whited sepulchers, well that was pretty judgmental. How can you escape the damnation of hell? That's pretty judgmental. But Jesus was judging with righteous judgment. And we've got to get back to that or we're going to be destroyed. <laughs> got to get back. Now, finally Jude says they are eternally doomed. And he doesn't mince words. He likens them to wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The word for wandering means literally a wanderer. Maybe Jude had in mind a shooting star that from time to time streaks across the black night sky. We've all seen them. Kathy and I saw one just recently. It was stupendous. But you know what? It was there and then it was gone. They seem to plunge into the blackness of darkness forever, never to be seen again. That's how he describes the fate 
of these apostates teaching heresy. Now again, Jude turns back to his Bible, and as he does so, reveals an original flash of revelation. Here's what he says. An insight into something that's nowhere else recorded in the Bible. He says, quote, in verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Now when he says these, look what he's talking about. Now, quote, now Enoch, says uh, Jude, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. When was Enoch? He was way back in primeval history. He was only seventh from Adam. And he had a revelation. Jude emphasizes two things. First, the Lord's coming with his people. He will return, he said, with ten thousands of his saints. This is what Jude was shown that the Bible doesn't reveal anywhere else. Jude was shown that Enoch said, not only is the Lord going to return, he's coming with you. He's coming with you. Look at your neighbor and say, me? I mean you. What is he saying here? Watch this. By sheer divine revelation, Jude reveals what is not told anywhere else in the Bible. Enoch predicted the Lord would return with his saints. Well, if he's returning with his saints, the saints have to have gone up to be able to return. Some of you are going to get that in the morning when you're drinking your coffee. Enoch, standing at the dawn of time, only the seventh from Adam, saw beyond his own day, all the way the last days, our days, seventh from Adam. He looked down the tunnel of time all the way to now. You know why? Because God dwells in the eternal present. With God, there is no future and there is no past. He dwells in the eternal present. So God is able to talk about our day way back in Enoch's day and tell him what was going to happen in our day because God dwells in the eternal present. This ancient man of God had no information at all, none, no knowledge of the coming church age. Even the Pentateuch wasn't here yet. There was no Bible at all. Yet he saw the return of Christ in the second advent along with the formerly raptured church. <laughs> Think about that a minute. Only God can do that. Here's a man, seventh from Adam. He's way before the flood. And he's sitting there and the Holy Ghost said, the Lord's going to return with ten thousands of his saints. He didn't know who that meant. He had no knowledge of the church age, but God showed it to him. And why is the Lord returning? Jude says, here's why he's returning. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Why is the Lord going to come back? He's going to come back to judge. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. Judgment is coming to this world as surely as you're sitting in that chair. If judgment is not coming to this world, then the Bible's not true. And I don't understand God. Because what the Bible reveals to me about God and what the Bible clearly teaches uh, about the future and about God having to judge is crystal clear. And the Lord's going to return. He's going to judge. Who's he going to judge? 
Notice the fourfold repetition of the word ungodly. He says it four times. Who's he coming back to judge? The ungodly. The ungodly among them is the first one. Ungodly deeds is the second one. Ungodly ways is the third one. And ungodly sinners is the fourth one. The promise is the Lord Jesus will return to judge the ungodly. And there won't be a rock you can hide under. As a matter of fact, Revelation says, men will be asking the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who has returned. Who is that one? Not the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. Jesus came as the Lamb. He's coming again as the Lion. And he says, he says, men are going to see him and beg the mountain. They, they, uh, uh, it would be a better fate for me if the mountains fell on me than I have to face the one whose face I see. At his second coming, the Lord's going to judge the nations. We know this, Matthew 25. He's going to judge those people of the earth who manage to somehow survive the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the pestilence, the ecological disasters, and the fierce persecutions of the apocalypse or the tribulation period. It will take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem or the valley of Megiddo. And the Lord will also summon and judge the lost of all the ages at the great white throne judgment. There's a lot of confusion in the church about this. I've had people say to me, well, you know, God's not going to judge Christians, so what's this? And, and what do you, I've heard you say the judgment seat of Christ. What does that mean? The judgment seat of Christ, talked about in 1 Corinthians, is when we will be rewarded for the life we lived as Christians. If we gave our lives to his ministry, to his call, and we used our giftings and, and ministered to others in his name and, and yielded his will for us, there is a reward. Crowns will be given. But the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with judging sin because we're not judged for sin because there isn't any more sin. In the life of a Christian, it was all washed away by the blood of Jesus. You know, Pastor, I, I sin sometimes. I know you do, and so do I. We mess up. We think things, say things, do things that we shouldn't do. But guess what? God sees you through the blood, and we won't be judged for sin. It's not going to happen. But at the great white throne judgment, here you go. Who can imagine the horror of this occasion when the living dead, Small and great stand before God and the books are open. See what most people don't realize? Everybody is going to be resurrected. Not just Christians. Every single person is going to be resurrected. Some to life, some to damnation. But every person that's ever lived is going to be resurrected. If you're a believer, you will be resurrected at the return of the Lord and receive a glorified body. But if you're not a believer, you will be resurrected... It says the dead will give up the dead that are in it, and the sea will give up the dead that are in it. And every man and woman that's ever lived and denied Christ and walked away from God and resisted grace will stand before God, resurrected. And a book will be open. It's called the book of life. The thing about it is, no one at the great white throne judgment will be in that book. The Bible says it'll be open, and any name not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. That's what it says. I didn't say that. I don't like that. I can't wrap my mind around that. 
But that's what it says. Well, I don't believe that's true, but what if it is? Well, I just don't believe a loving God would do that. You don't understand the holiness of God. A loving God gave His only begotten Son. He so loved the world. Uh, whoever believes on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. A loving God did that. But a holy God must judge sin. Well, I just don't think that's true. Well, you better think about it. Listen to what the Word of God says. Well, I'm going to take my chances. That's a big chance. This is the dreadful judgment to which the apostates will be summoned. Jude says the Lord will convict all of the ungodly among them. This means that he's going to show them to be fully wrong. Fully wrong in their teaching, fully wrong in their beliefs, fully wrong in their conclusions, fully wrong in their lifestyle, fully, thoroughly, thoroughgoing wrong. He will convict all of the ungodly among them. Convict means convince. There won't be anybody debating the returning Christ. No, let's talk about this. There won't be any talking. His light will shine like an x-ray on every single person and every shred of darkness will be revealed. Whatever is done in the dark is going to be brought to the light. Now, all of the paper tiger lies of the apostates are going to be exposed. And they will enter a lost eternity fully aware of all the deceit they have practiced and of the vast damage they've brought to others. They will know. And Jude makes a particular point of those that have done and spoken harshly against Jesus. Watch this. Harshly is from the Greek word meaning hard, fierce, violent. Ungodly sinners have said horrific, blasphemous things against the Lord of glory. They have denounced the God of the Old Testament as cruel, vindictive, and bloodthirsty. They've mocked the virgin birth of Christ. They've created so-called works of art that defile and offend the name of Jesus. They have called Christ Jesus every despicable name available in the dark alleyways of human depraved verbiage. And they will soon answer to the one they've mocked. What did the verse say? Go back to it real quickly because it's a powerful verse. If I can find it, uh, I can't find it. Keep going. Hang with me. Jeff, you're going to have to edit this, but I want them to see it again if I can just find it. There it is. Verse 15. What's he coming for? To execute judgment on all, to convict all of their ungodly deeds. And look what it says. Which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I tremble at what I hear and see people saying and doing against Christ in our generation. I can't tell you some of the things that I've read recently. I can't even repeat them. What certain segments of our culture are saying against Jesus, doing against Jesus, so-called art, blasphemy, ridiculous, foolish, stupid, ignorant things against the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear for them. I fear because the day will come. He'll return and they're going to be brought up before him and have to answer for everything they said against the Lord of glory. What a fearful thing. What a sobering thing. Amen. 
All right, moving along here, and we're almost there. Jude has now reached the end of his long exposure of apostates. He has one last look at their behavior. He talks about their obsessive godlessness. We're going to look at this and we're going to close. They are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. In both their walk and their talk, these apostates expose their chronic godlessness. These, Jude says, and it's one of his favorite exclamations, these... And he says they are grumblers. Grumble means to mutter, to murmur. I know none of you have done that yet in 2011. But to mutter, to murmur, to say anything in a low tone. All right, I just don't like this. Don't like them, don't like him, don't like her, I don't like my life. God's not been good to me. This faith stuff's a bunch of. The same word is used in the muttering of the scribes and Pharisees against Christ. It is to express discontent. And they're not only uh, grumblers, they're complainers. This Greek word for complain occurs only here, and it means to find fault with one's lot, to be discontented, to whine. Anybody know a whiner? Anybody know a whiner? Anybody live with a whiner? Don't, don't raise your hand. But anybody know a whiner? Is it edifying to be around a whiner? No, 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 whiners. But you know what? When you're whining, here's what you're saying. Every time you whine, you're saying, I don't trust God. Don't trust his sovereignty. Don't trust his providence. Don't trust him. Nothing can be more contrary to the spirit of the Lord Jesus than a muttering, discontented spirit. It's utterly destructive of church life, family life, and national life. And apostates are constant, chronic complainers. Don't be a complainer. Learn to praise God. Learn to thank God. Seriously. Because, listen, if you're a complainer and a whiner, you're digging your own grave with the shovel called your tongue. And the more you whine and complain, the more down you're going to get and the more the devil's going to get a lock on your life. Don't complain and don't whine, but praise God. He's good. He's going to break through for you. He's not going to leave you where you are. He's a good God. All right? Jude says they walk after their own lusts. They mold their life after their own fleshly desires, not after Christ and his word. The cravings of the sinful nature are their masters. Jude continues to say they speak great swelling words. They talk big. To hear them talk, you would think they are the epitome of common sense and intelligence. They cite their authorities, their philosophers. They're smooth in speech, good with words, but all the while they undermine the truth of Scripture. Jude lastly mentions their obvious goal. Here's what they're after, flattering people to gain advantage. They're always buttering somebody up who they think is important or from whom they want something. They're after what they want, not what God may want. Well, that's not a very flattering picture of the apostates, is it? Amen. Anybody want to be an apostate here? We can give an altar call. Anybody want to be one? No. We want to go the other direction, don't we? And... He's finished talking about apostates, and we are going to go the other direction next week. Read the title with me, would you? Here's where it gets good. Because now he's going to say, but you, beloved. All right, let's stand up together, can we? God is good all the time. Learn to praise him. Let's just praise him right now and thank him. Lord, you're good. We're not going to murmur, complain, grumble, but you're good, Lord. We praise you. We will not give our tongue over to a complaining spirit, but we worship you and bless you. 
We will not be fault finders. We will not be critics. We will not live as a complaining, murmuring whiner. But Lord, we bless the name of Jesus. We bless the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God is good all the time. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are always made to triumph in Jesus Christ. I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Praise you, Lord God. Let's sing it, Heidi. Let's bless the Lord before we go tonight.